Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, hello. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm so excited to be here. So glad to see your smiling faces. Uh, for those of you who are smiling, but... Um, my name is Aaron Bjorklund. If you don't know, um, if you're new or newish, I'm one of the pastors here at South. Normally I'm up here getting a chance to lead us in singing, but today uh, we're giving, we, we decided Alex was allowed to take a break like at least once a year. So um, he's, he's out continuing to enjoy his family in the UK and he sent me a picture uh, this morning at three o'clock in the morning and uh, thanks a lot, Alex. Uh, no, uh, no, he sent me a picture, and they, they look like they're having a blast, and they're being recharged and replenished. Hey, if that is you, and you are new, uh, then we actually have a table just for you. It's called the New Here Table. It's in the lobby. It's an opportunity for us to just have a quick conversation with you about how you can get connected and plugged in to the life of South Fellowship Church. And uh, it, I think it's a big deal, because if this this thing that we're doing here is the only experience you have of South Fellowship Church, singing some songs, listening to a sermon, um, then you're missing out. You're just, you're just really missing out on all the good stuff. Um, in fact, I'd, I'd venture to say if this is your only experience of church in general, in any church, then you're missing out because there is community to be had. There's relationships to form. There is, there is uh, gifts that you have that our city that our community need. And so um, if you really wanna go deep, if you, wanna, if you wanna thrive and grow and that sort of thing and find all of the life and goodness that, that comes with being a part of a church community, then check out the New Here table. We wanna get you plugged in and that's, uh, that's a huge deal. A couple other items of business. Uh, we have a podcast midweek. It's called the Red Couch Theology Podcast. It's an opportunity for us. You can subscribe there or, or on any podcast service. It's also an opportunity for you to text in questions that you have. So I'd encourage you, go ahead and just save it uh, into your phone as a contact. Maybe you won't use it today, but in the future, you're like, oh, I do have a question. I'll send that question in. It's an opportunity for us to go a little bit deeper on the subject that we cover on a Sunday morning. And we usually deal with some of the trickier, stickier ideas and questions and wrestle in this podcast about those things uh, at, at greater length. And we have been getting some awesome questions in it. Um, so I encourage you to do that. Uh, today, I'm excited because we're kicking off a new series entitled Ordinary Time. And, and we get that title from the church calendar. Uh, that's the season of the church calendar that we're in currently. It's called ordinary time. And if, you, if you're not familiar with the church calendar, we, we sort of loosely follow the church calendar here at South. We occasionally let it really strongly inform the content of our messages. Other times we just loosely reference the season of the church calendar that we're in. But either way, this, this series, we're actually getting our topic, our themes right from the church calendar, and the series title is Ordinary Time. And it's, it's pretty much what it sounds like. It's the, it's the ordinary time of the year. Um, it, it's the season where we're not celebrating any of the high church holidays or festivals or, or these sorts of things of the church calendar, like Advent and Lent and Christmas and Easter and Pentecost. No, this is, this is the, the ordinary time. But before you check out, I, let, me, let me tell you, I think that this is where Jesus really needs to show up. Am I wrong? 
It might be easy to show up with a, a set of a little bit extra expectation on Easter Sunday morning or on Christmas Eve to a service and say, my heart and my posture is towards you, God, but, but what we really need is the way of Jesus and the heart of Jesus to show up when we go to work every day. When we interact with our spouse and with our kids, we need him to show up in the ordinary time. And that's what this series is about. I love the lyrics of uh, Matt Redman's song, Your Grace Finds Me. It says this, it's there on the mountaintop. Oh, praise the Lord. It's there on Easter. It's there in the everyday and the mundane. There in the sorrow and the dancing, your great grace. Oh, such grace. And so ordinary time is the everyday and the mundane. And so my prayer in this series, as we venture into it and we, we sort of enter into ordinary time, is that we would discover deposits of God's grace in the everyday, in the mundane. That's what this series is about. Now, you may have also noticed that there's a subtitle to the series. It's a summer in the lectionary. So not only are we following the church calendar, we're actually going to be getting our passages right from the lectionary. And if you didn't grow up in a high church environment or a liturgical church. You may not know what the lectionary is, so let me give you a definition. The lectionary is a list or book of, or of portions of the Bible appointed to be read at a church service. So uh, my definition is, it's a Bible reading plan. So it's a Bible reading plan, uh, but specifically it's a Bible reading plan designed to be read in church services because in the early church, the majority of people who said that they were followers of Jesus were illiterate. And so the only time they ever heard the scriptures read was when they gathered together for corporate worship and someone who could read would read the scriptures. And so real quick, the leadership figured out, hey, we don't wanna miss teaching the entire scope of scripture. Like you guys can read your own Bible reading plans and we encourage you to do that. And all that post-Protestant Reformation, post the printing press, it becomes much, much easier to engage the scriptures from beginning to end. But these leaders decided we need to organize the method so that we don't miss some of the teaching. And then they started forming lectionaries to make sure that they delivered the scriptures to the people over the course of time. And there's been tons of lectionaries over the years. Uh, the most recent edition of the lectionary, the lectionary that we're going to be using in this series is the Revised Common Lectionary. It was most recently renovated in the early 60s at Vatican II. And um, yeah, so that's the lectionary that we're going to be engaging. So you might be asking, why the lectionary? Are, are we going high church here? Are we, are we, it feels maybe for some of you who grew up in the Catholic church, you might be thinking, oh, is this, a, is this a Catholic thing? Well, no. Protestants all over the world use the lectionary. It's not a Catholic thing. Are we going liturgical? Well, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> See, at South, we kind of like to dip into a wide expression of both worship and of liturgy. We, we like, because I think that there's, there's beauty and goodness to the structure of some of these things like the lectionary that really resonate with some of you out there. And for others of you, it just feels dead to you. And so we also like to engage other forms of service order and service structure. And so over the course of an entire year here, we will encounter all kinds of different ways of teaching and exposing ourselves to the scriptures. But this time we've decided to teach through the lectionary, to expose ourselves to that. And so here's a couple of reasons why the lectionary for this series. It's globally unifying. So 
This isn't just any old Bible reading plan. This is the most widely adopted, widely utilized Bible reading plan in the history of the world. That means this morning, churches and followers of Jesus all across the planet Earth will be reading from the same passages that we'll encounter today, and there may be millions of, maybe billions of followers of Jesus may read some of the verses that we will read today, and there's something beautiful about that. It's globally unifying. So in this series, one of the things we wanted to do is to remind ourselves we have this, this value on the wall that says we value rootedness. And that means that we're part of a faith. We stand on the shoulder of gi- shoulders of giants and we're part of a faith that's spanned all the way from the beginning of time all the way up to today, a faith that has expanded the globe. And there are followers of Jesus trying to figure out how to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And we're just one little tiny cog in that wheel. And it's such a gift for us to step into the wider stream of the Christian movement and say, um, we're part of this big, beautiful Jesus movement. So that's one reason. Another reason is it helps us relinquish control of teaching topics. So if you're a preacher or a part of a preaching team like we have in this series, it's really easy sometimes to gravitate towards subject matters that feel pertinent to you at the time. Maybe it's personal. Um, I've long thought, like, sometimes I've asked the Lord, is this a message for me personally or is this a message for South? Um, those, those kinds of questions, well, uh, or a subject matter that may come up in your community, whatever it may be. But when you teach through the lectionary, you're sort of at the mercy of the Spirit of God and whatever he wants to teach you from the passage that shows up on the lectionary that day. So it's a little bit of an adventure. It's like you just, we, each week as the preacher is opening the Bible and they're finding the text and they're like, oh no. I had a little bit of that when we ran ran into the passage that we are going to be looking at today. Um, But we're just, it's actually a beautiful thing to just relinquish control. Just say, we're on the journey. We're going to open up your word and see what you have for us today. I need to do this a little shorter because my little Bible nerd soapbox for a second, but I also think the lectionary gives us a tiny window into the brilliance of the biblical library. Because here's what's going on. The lectionary, the revised common lectionary is the course, over the course of three years, you'll read almost the entire scriptures. There's just a few select verses that for various, we could have different conversation about that, but for various reasons aren't in there. But over the course of three years, you'd read the entire Bible, but you take readings each Sunday from the Old Testament, from the Pentateuch, from the Psalms, from the prophets, from the gospels, and from the epistles. And one of the things that's going on there is, is that the, the folks who organized and developed these reading plans we're noticing the interconnectedness of the scriptures. And uh, just so you know, I'm not going to be preaching all of those today. That would be a nightmare. I'm, so I'm not going to do that to you, but we will encounter several of the lectionary texts this morning. Uh, but what I think it, it does, oh, actually, if you do want to encounter them all, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the Daily Devotional because one of the things we're doing is we're taking a little hiatus from our normal uh, writing plan and we're going to be just publishing the lectionary readings throughout the week for the the coordinating Sunday and then offering a reflection for that. So I'd encourage you to subscribe to our daily team. This goes out every single Monday through Thursday uh, there and I'd so encourage you to do that. But uh, here's what I think is beautiful about the lectionary. It also subconsciously, maybe not consciously, but it shows us the brilliance of the biblical library. Uh, 
Love him or hate him, the uh, postmodern scholars of literature have this theory, and I think that they're spot on with this particular theory because they, they doubt everything, right? This is what the postmodern mind does. Doubt the interpretation of all these things, but so they're like, how do we determine, if we doubt everything, how do we determine the quality of or influence of a piece of literature on society? And the way they decided to do that is to say, how many hyperlinks does that text have with other pieces of literature and art in society? And the greater that text is hyperlinked with other texts, the more influence it has. And I think that that's spot on. So check this out. I just ordered this poster to put in my office. Every one of the lines across the bottom of here is a verse in the scriptures. And this represents 63,000 currently noticed hyperlinks from one passage to another within the biblical library. Now, if you were to expand this to the rest of the literature and art, you'd be dumbfounded. The scriptures have influenced more literature and more art and more poetry than any other book in history. And so um, I think some of what we get to see when we go through the lectionary is some of these hyperlinking connectedness that we find. Because here's what's going on. The Bible is a collection of 66 books from approximately 40 authors written on three separate continents, written in three languages, and was compiled over the span of an estimated 1,500 to 1,600 years. And yet there's so much interconnectedness. And so the readings that we have here were some early scholars noticing some of that interconnectedness and saying, you know, Let's put this passage with this one and with this one. And then we not just, you don't just get the beauty of the text itself. That's great. But when you combine it with some of the others, it becomes this multifaceted language of God's heart to his people. And we'll get to see a little bit about that. So one more order of business, and I promise we'll read the scriptures. Um, you may have come in and noticed this little notebook on your chair when you came in. Um, this is what we want you to do with that. Alex and I were talking over the last few weeks about the, the last few series we've had about listening to God's voice and about the Spirit of God, and we said, you know what we want to make sure we don't do here at South? We want to make sure that we don't become a church that, that relegates the Holy Spirit to a couple sermon series a year. So we want to strengthen our listening to the spirit muscles. And so that's what this little notebook's for. I want you to take it, label it ordinary time, bring it back every single week, or pull out a, a notebook and, or a, on your phone or whatever and label it ordinary time. And with anticipation in your heart, ask the question, spirit, speak to me something. What do you want to say to me today? Highlight something, convict me about something, challenge me to do something, uh, to call someone or whatever it may be. And uh, that's what that notebook's for. Now, if you do that, I encourage you to actually write it down because later in the series, we're going to get a chance to share what the Spirit's been speaking to uh, our community about. All right, end of the preamble. Would you actually stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Our lectionary text for today comes from Jeremiah chapter 20, starting in verse 7. And this is just one of the texts from the lectionary for today. And I'm going to read... For you, and I'm going to do my best to try and move the slides as well, but I'll do, we'll see. <laughs> um, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me 
insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispers, terror on every side. Denounce him, let him denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying perhaps he will be deceived, then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the hearts and minds, let me see your vengeance on them, for to, to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. And before you sit, we're gonna actually pray this prayer. This is a prayer of anticipation that he would speak to us. Let's pray this together. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may hear your word with joy. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Yes, Lord, this is our desire to hear from you. If you don't speak, then nothing of value happens today. So speak. Not me. You. Speak, we pray. In your beautiful name. Amen. So when I read this passage... Uh, a couple weeks ago for the first time, I kind of felt like I had a kindred spirit in Jeremiah because uh, if you know me a little bit, I can get a little bit emotionally charged about stuff. I get fired up and energetic. In fact, the last maybe three times I preached here, I walked off the stage in tears at the end of each sermon. I, th- I, I survived first service, so maybe no tears today, but I just get so emotionally charged about things, especially when it comes to ideas, because I think ideas are profound. And so when, when, when I read this, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. And I'm like, oh yeah, it feels like that sometimes. <laughs> and as a follower of Jesus, I, um, that means I've become really passionate about theological ideas. Now my, my wife calls that stubbornness, but I think it's because I'm a man of conviction. <laughs> you can decide which one of us is right. <laughs> She's probably right, whatever. But I do think what we believe shapes how we live. And and so ideas are really important to me. Now, for the most part, that served me pretty well because it means that when I do approach a subject, I tend to study really deeply and look at all the sources and that sort of thing. And when I come to conclusion, it, it usually means I've at least exposed myself to a wide swath of the subject matter. Um, and so I guess that's good, but it's also left me in deep emotional distress at times. So some of you know this guy. Uh, this is our previous lead pastor, Ryan Paulson. This is, I found this old, old photograph This was his first Easter he ever preached here. (laughs) The place looks a lot different. Um, But when he came on, I'd been here for a little bit of time, and uh, we just resonated 
We just, our hearts seemed similar. I grilled him with all my theological questions during his interview process, and I was really excited to work with this guy. And at first, it was great, and I, I loved it, and it was so fun, and we resonated. But then, about a year in, I found out that he actually had a different opinion on a theological issue that was really dear to me at the time. It was the issue of Calvinism and Arminianism. I'd, I'd studied a lot. I'd been in one camp in high school just because that's how my church was. Then when I went to Bible college, I'd studied and studied and studied, and I'd come to the conclusion, to the best of my knowledge, that the scriptures put me in this one camp. And, and then I showed up, and I realized that, that uh, Ryan was in a different camp on this issue, and it blew my mind. Because here's the problem. I really liked him. And I even respected him. And and unfortunately for me, I was pretty sure he's way smarter than me. But I was so emotionally distraught by this that I actually considered resigning. Because this conversation had shaped the face of God for me. And and when I tried to picture the face of God through the, the framework of Ryan's theology, it looked like a different face and I didn't, and didn't like it. It was unfamiliar, I didn't know that God. And I was so bent out of shape, he, doesn't know, he didn't know this at the time. So a couple uh, weeks ago I actually texted him, told him, is it okay if I share this story? And I said, it actually turns out good for you because I switched camps and now I'm back in, in the same camp as he is, but he didn't seem to be all that emotionally distraught about this conversation as, as I was, but it got me to wondering, why do I get so emotionally charged about my beliefs? And maybe you do too. I think church history tells us that it's a very common thing for followers of Jesus to get really emotionally charged about theological conversations or political conversations. So let's do a little quick church history survey. This guy named Callistus and Tertullian, there was a debate going on in their day. See, leading up to their ministries, uh, the church was deeply per- persecuted and uh, if you professed Jesus, oftentimes you were killed or they threatened your family if you didn't deny Christ. And so it was a terrible season to be a Christian. And many people uh, were martyred during that season because they wouldn't, refu- wouldn't um, denounce Christ. But others did to protect their family members or to protect their own lives. And um, then as the temperature started to uh, get a little bit cooler and and it was less intense and persecution reduced in the empire, uh, some of these Christians who denounced their faith wanted back into the church. What do you do? Do you let them back in? Do you not let them back in? And so this was the debate. Callistus said, yes, if you, if you show a season of repentance that you are genuinely a follower of Jesus, then there is a way to restore fellowship, even with someone who denied Christ under the heat of of persecution. Tertullian said, "Uh uh-uh, not a chance. That is the unforgivable sin. You can't deny Christ. And this was a heated debate. Actually, that's where, just a little extra bonus point, uh, that's actually where indulgences came from. It was Callistus' attempt to say, hey, if you do these things, it's a way of demonstrating repentance. Anyway, that's bonus. There's this guy. This is Martin Luther, the, the 
the Reformation took place and he had 95 points that he disagreed with on the, for the Catholic Church. He said, you guys have gone off the rails in this way, this way, this way, this way. And uh, that became a heated debate and it actually divided the, the then Catholic Church. There'd actually been one division prior to that with the Eastern Orthodox Church, but uh, we're, we can't go through the entire list of grievances throughout church history. So uh, this broke the Catholic Church into the Protestant and the Catholic Church. Now that conversation, uh, initially, they sort of were localized in different regions. The Protestants tended to be over here, uh, Catholics tended to be over here, but then the Protestants started to advance and, and spill across the territories and things got even more intense. And the 30 years war took place. 30 years of intense, some historians say one of the bloodiest in most intense, long-lasting wars in all of history, millions upon millions of people died over a theological debate. Now, there was more at play. Back then, there was no difference between theology and politics. Separation of church and state wasn't a thing, so it's a political, theologically charged, emotionally charged thing, and people died over proper use of communion, over all of these kinds of things, the nature of authority, and on and on. Then denominationalism took place. There was this debate. I used to think denominationalism was a horrible thing, and there's still some really sad parts of denominations being split and the God's church being fractured into thousands of parts, but it was actually a response largely to, the, uh, to this war that was taking place. They got together and they said, hey, can we stop killing each other? Can we just agree to disagree on some of these issues? And so denominations started to form to prevent bloodshed. And so there's actually some good and some beauty in the denominationalism, but it's so emotionally charged that it fractured God's church around the world. There's this, the Civil War. And I know there's more at play than just theology, but this conversation theologians were writing in Europe and in Americas about the issue of slavery, and they were disagreeing about this issue, and it got so emotionally charged, it started to fracture the, both the political and the theological environment here in the States, and we went to war, some of which was related to a theological debate, and on and on. Last week, the Southern Baptist Convention voted to kick a, over a thousand churches out of their uh, denomination because of disagreements about theology, and they, it was just a disagreement. We think too differently on this issue to continue to easily fellowship with each other. So they, they said, we're just going to have to part ways. We're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. And so it goes on and on, and it gets really close to home maybe for some of us. It fractures church communities, friends, families. Maybe that's what it is for you. Maybe you grew up in a different faith tradition and your family looks at you and says, I, you've gone off the rails. You've completely gone off the rails. You're either too conservative or too liberal or whatever, or maybe you've changed political parties and your family looks at you and says, you've gone off the rails and it makes tension in the relationship even with your own family. One of our other lectionary passages happens to be in Psalm 69, verse 7 through 9. Actually, it's larger than this, but I'm going to read this section for you. It says this, For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. 
for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insult of those who insult you fall on me. Maybe for some of you, that feels familiar. Maybe it's a conversation between you and a spouse, you and a child, you in this community. So here's the question I thought we should look at today. Why do our beliefs become so emotionally charged? What's up with that? War? Really? War over theology? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe a better question is, should our beliefs become so emotionally charged? So what do we do when we disagree with our own communities? What do we do do when we disagree with our own families? So I have a confession. Um, This week, as I was prepping, actually I prepped the majority of the messes last week, and then this week we were away at family camp, and I kept on reading this text, and something fell off, and, and I realized I don't think I can preach the original idea I wanted to preach. I don't think that that would be faithful to the text. Because here's what I kind of wanted to preach. When I read this passage at first, here's the emotion that I wanted to teach you today. We should just stop caring so much about our theological beliefs. Can't we just calm down a little bit? Deep breathing, everyone. Deep breathing. Let's just calm down a little bit. Uh, It reminded me of the great theologian, Taylor Swift, her lyrics in this song. So, uh-oh, you need to calm down. You're being too loud. I'm just like, uh-oh, you need to just stop. Like, can you just not step on my gown? You need to calm down. This is sort of the idea I wanted to preach today. But here's the problem. There's actually a couple problems with that. Uh, what I realized as I was honest in the presence of God studying this passage is that my emotion, my desire for the debate, the heated debate between this side and this side on any given issue, I just wanted them to calm down. And I was getting really antsy about it. Because here's, here's the issue. Strong feelings, strongly feeling like people should have strong, shouldn't have strong feelings is a strong feeling that I have. So I was wrapped right up there with them, Right? My theological bent was that maybe this particular issue shouldn't be as big of an issue as I think, as they think it is, until it becomes a subject I really care about. So my theology was calmed down. And so I don't think that that, and and here's the truth, some theological and political issues are worth debating over. In fact, our text today, Jeremiah, his commissioning was to preach something that people didn't like, and that was a commissioning that given to him by God. So some issues are worth having a little bit of attention over. So I kind of threw up my arms and I said, where, where do we go? Should we, maybe this was the wrong question. Maybe a better question for us would be this. What is a healthy way to approach these debates when they inevitably happen? What's a healthy approach to this kind of conversation? Because here's the truth. You can be correct, but it doesn't prevent you from being wrong. 
You can get the theology right and the character so wrong that it, who cares about the theology anymore? Because wars, right? Because death and bloodshed. And that just doesn't work with the way of Jesus. All right, so we're going to dive in this passage. And I think Jeremiah and this text will give us some insight in how we as the people of God can approach the emotionally charged conversations that we have in our societies and in our communities and in our families today. So uh, if you were here for Lent, we actually did a series through the book of Jeremiah. And I know all of you have it all memorized and you know all of the context and all that, but we do have a few new people who've come since that series. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of context to catch you up. So Jeremiah is a prophet, and he's a, he's a prophet and a priest in Israel in the early, in the 625-ish time frame BC, and he's been commissioned by God to preach out against Israel and their idolatry, their worship of other gods, and especially the way that they're treating widows and orphans and the poor. And he says, if we go this way, we're headed towards destruction. This is the message that he's been given. But here's the problem. Jeremiah isn't the only priest and prophet in Israel. In fact, there's a lot more. And almost all of them are saying the exact opposite from him. So it dawned on me this week as I was studying this, this is a theological debate. I don't know why I thought that maybe some of these conversations were with some other outsider. Like it's Jeremiah versus some non-Israelite. No, 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 no. This is all in the family. There's other priests, there's other prophets speaking out. In fact, this is what their message was. Jeremiah said this about them. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. They say, peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. So this was a theological debate between Jeremiah and these other priests and prophets, and it got really, really intense. So intense that in the passage right before our reading, this takes place, when the priest pusher I probably should have practiced these, words, these names, but Pashir, son of Emir, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. He had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put into stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. So this is exactly what we're talking about in, in my introduction. It's intense. It's gotten physical. It's gotten violent. And here's the question, how do we know who's right? You have leaders on two different sides speaking on behalf of God. Well, the answer you might be thinking is, well, yeah, it's obviously you just, let's just do what's this, right? This is how you know what's right. The problem is these debates, both parties are saying they have the word of God. And our modern debates are the same, especially in the church. I don't know of anyone in the Protestant debate who's saying, yeah, you know, I don't really care about the Bible at all. We should do this. That's just not a thing. Everyone thinks they have the Bible on their side. So then what? How do we approach these kinds of conversations? And I think we get some insight into, what, into the way Jeremiah dealt with this emotionally charged situation. Not only the emotional intensity that's coming at him, but the emotions that he's feeling, the fire in his bones, like we talked about. Um, after he's released from these chains, he speaks some very harsh words to this character that we read about, but then he goes to God in prayer and he says this. 
You deceive me, Lord. And I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I can't. I think the first thing we can learn from Jeremiah's response to this intensity is this. God carries the weight of vindication so you don't have to. He goes to God Notice what he's doing here. He's blaming God for what's happening to him. He's placing the weight of this intensity on God. See, the debate is about God's heart and God's way, so let God carry its weight. I think this is a lost start in the church. The psalm that was our other reading in Psalm 69, our other lectionary text for today, is doing the exact same thing. It's a, it's a person of God saying, I am trying to hold out. Zeal for your house consumes me. I'm trying to stay faithful to you, and yet I'm getting attacked. And you cry out to God. That's an appropriate place to let that energy of emotions be vented. God is a safe place to let it out. I think maybe we need to pray a few more prayers like this. When it gets really heated, rather than shouting in the face of your opponent, shout to God and say, vindicate me. If I'm off base, tell me. But you need to show up. And you need to vindicate me. I'm out. That's an okay prayer to pray. What else do we learn from Jeremiah? He says, whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. I hear many whispers, terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. So he's venting this all out to God. But I wanna just pay attention to something else here. This is maybe a lesson for someone here. That intensity that you're feeling in this conversation isn't a sign that you're off the rails necessarily. Sometimes these things are so serious, they're important. And, and the pressures that you're feeling isn't a sign that you're necessarily off base. And I don't know if that's for anyone, but the, uh, one of our other lectionary passages says this, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. This is Jesus speaking. I didn't come to bring peace. Really? Huh. Okay, but a sword. I'm listening, Jesus. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Okay. So maybe, maybe it's supposed to be emotionally charged. Maybe there's supposed to be some splitting up of things, right? Um, the good news isn't always received as good news. I want, I want to pay attention to the context of these texts. 
both in Psalms reading from today, the Jeremiah text, and this passage that we just read from Matthew, the context is this. The message that they're preaching is a message of hope, of grace, of mercy, of good news to the poor. This is the context. If you go back and read just prior to this section, he's saying, I'm sending you out to preach this gospel. This is the content of the message and they're gonna hate you for it. Hey, if you get hated for preaching the love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, hey, sometimes the message isn't received. Um, Jeremiah turns to God, but the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will, be, will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. <laughs> you know, Jer- Jeremiah's just pouring it out, isn't he? The Lord Almighty, you will examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind. Let, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy. So our original question was this, should our beliefs become emotionally charged? And I suspect the answer is actually no. And here's why. It doesn't mean that they're not serious and the conversation doesn't have to happen. But if you are a person that has relinquished your emotional energy in the presence of God, you can let go of that emotional energy and you can have a cordial, kind-hearted conversation with someone. The emotional intensity of the debate weakens when we turn the outcomes over to him. I want to turn to Jesus for a moment and get his advice on the subject of these conversations. Philippians chapter 2 says this. I'm actually going to jump ahead a little bit here. Paul's writing to the church there, and he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not only looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mind as Christ. And here's the gold nugget. What is Jesus' posture? You see, Jesus got in some pretty intense conversation with with, with the religious leaders of his day. So what was Jesus' posture towards these debates? Who Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The cross is the posture of God towards his enemies. That's, That's it. That's final. The cross is the posture of God towards his enemies. He had heated conversations and debates, and then he says, okay, you don't believe the love of God? Let me show you. I will die for you. That's the debate that's worth taking. That's the debate that's worth living for. The people of God, here's the challenge for us as South. The people of God, with God's heart, willingly receive the blows of disagreement, but don't throw blows themselves. That's our invitation. I'm gonna invite Hannah to come back up and I just wanna share a story. So um, 
Actually, one more observation before I get to the story. I think that if the, maybe you can measure the emotion, uh, the quality of someone's theological stance by the emotional energy that they're bringing to it. Because if they're a person who has relinquished that energy in the presence of God, they can usually come to the conversation with less emotional charge. It's not a foolproof way to say they're right or wrong, but a person whose heart is submitted and surrendered, hey, I have, I'm willing to, to die to show you love. I don't need to get so emotionally charged about this one. I'm gonna be firm, I'm gonna stand my ground, but it might be one way you can determine whether someone is doing this kind of prayer work with God. So there's a story about Dallas Willard that um, was circulating around uh, where he's a philosophy professor and he had this uh, class, one of his students just sort of railed him during the course of a class. And the kid was wrong and the whole class knew it. He was making all this argument, and you don't, but you haven't seen this, you don't understand this other thing. And, and then Dallas let the kid talk. And then he said, I think that's the end of class today. And some of the students came up to him afterwards and said, why didn't you just pick him apart? His argument was flawed here and here and here and here and here. And Dallas said, you know what? I was practicing the discipline of not having the last word. Later on, he was... Uh, John Ortberg was talking to him, asking him about this whole idea of being right and wanting to be right. And Dallas Willard said this, being right is actually a very hard burden to be able to carry gracefully. <laughs> wow. That's why nobody likes to sit next to the kid in class who's right all the time. One of the hardest things in the world to be right is to be right and not hurt people. Let's be a church who pursues being right. But if we start hurting people with being right, oh, we are wrong, wrong, wrong. My hope, I'm actually really proud of South in this season, we're having this conversation about women on the elder board. And I've heard stories about these listening forums and how uh, gracious people have been and firm. They have conviction, but they're gracious and they're having conversations with other human beings because they're relinquishing the control to God. That's the kind of community that this can be. Let's be that kind of church. Let's not become uh, the church that, um, that holds our views so strongly that we start to commit violence and actually exhibit the exact opposite of the way of Jesus. I, I've asked Hannah to sing this song over us. This is just our commitment uh, to do to have these conversations with the Jesus way. So I'm gonna have her sing this over you and then I'll be up in just a moment to close this. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.